welcome everybody. Andrew Holacek here. Um, I am really excited to be able to spend the next hour or so with uh, really quite a remarkable individual, Jeff Warren. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree with me after we get going that uh, he is indeed remarkable. And so as usual, I will start with a brief formal bio introduction. And then we're just going to jump right in because there is a ton of material that I want to ask Jeff and that we're going to kind of uh, ping pong back and forth. So Jeff Warren is a meditation instructor and journalist celebrated for his dynamic and accessible style of teaching. He is co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. By the way, I have to insert um, one of the most enjoyable and delightful books I read in quite a while, Jeff, really great introduction um, to the topic of meditation altogether. He's also the author of The Head Trip, uh, Adventures on the Wheel of Consciousness, which is what we're going to focus on, at least initially, The Travel Guide to Sleeping, Dreaming, and Waking. He's also the founder of the Consciousness Explorers Club, a nonprofit meditation adventure group based in Toronto. His mission is to empower people to take responsibility for their own mental health, through the realistic, intelligent, and sometimes irreverent exploration of meditation and personal growth practices. So Jeff, thank you, uh, my friend, for taking the time out of your busy schedule, writing down there in Costa Rica, as I understand it, um, to chat with us today. We're really excited to have you on board. I'm very happy to be here. And I, I'm every bit as excited to chat with you as apparently you are with me. So we, uh, cool. when I was researching you and looking at your work, I even have your dream yoga at home. It's uh, um, kind of my two passions, you know, this feels like this conversation is an opportunity to kind of connect my interest in dreaming and the dream world with uh, meditation and consciousness more broadly. So I'm very excited. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, so yeah, let's, let's just jump, jump right into it, but I want to start with, with what in some ways was a kind of a, an overview summary statement when, when I read head trip, which by the way, I really enjoyed, there were a couple, um, sections on that book that just really stood out for me. And I, I will highlight a couple of these and one or two of them I'm going to kind of send your way for, for um, topics for a discussion. But you say something here that I thought was really completely in resonance with um, what we are doing with our little adventure called Nightclub. And uh, I'm going to read it with just a few little comments as, go, as I go through it as a way to launch into this. And then uh, we can really get going. So this is what you say early, relatively early on in the book. I came to realize that in a number of important ways, in order to understand day consciousness properly, night is the best place to start. The forces that shape dreaming consciousness do not suddenly vanish when the sun rises. Rather, they go underground and wield their mysterious influence from below. Day mirrors night in ways few people appreciate. Once you acquire this slightly eerie holistic perspective, it becomes very hard to shake, end quote. And I wanted to just toss in a couple insertions, and then we can use this as a seed for, for launching in. You know, it's a, you say here, in order to understand day consciousness properly, night is the best place to start. First of all, I couldn't agree more with you, um, and especially if we say night slash darkness, because um, as you well know, um, Darkness precedes light in so many ways. You know, um, the before prior to the Big Bang, the flash that gave birth to this uh, universe conjectured was the silent darkness. You know, we seeds arise 
in Germinate, uh, the darkness on the underground. In the book of Genesis, um, darkness precedes light. Um, we were probably conceived in the dark, spent nine months in the dark, and then literally came into the world from it. And um, as you probably know, in the wisdom traditions, in particular here, I'm referring to Vajrayana Buddhism and, and Shaiva Tantra, they both assert that uh, so-called waking consciousness is is uh, an epigenetic um, or an epiphenomenal expression of these more um, subtle, darker states. And even Matthew Walker, uh, a neuroscientist in his best-selling book, Why We Sleep, goes so far as to conjecture in, in one part of his book that even from a neurobiological uh, point of view, that sleep is uh, perhaps the primordial um, foundational state and that uh, in, in many ways we have to sleep to recover the damage created <laughs> through the waking arena. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And then finally, and then I'll, I'll let you respond to this, is you say day mirrors night in few ways appreciate. I think um, I, would, I would actually go so far as to say that day influences um, and even is controlled by night. Um, in other words, just like you're saying in this quote, these underground forces that are revealed in the, kind of the nocturnal adventure, they still continue to exert their influence on, again, our so-called waking state. You know, backstage really always runs on stage. And so I, I just wanted to toss that out as an overarching um, statement of, of resonance with what you did with this remarkable book and what we can start to talk about. Um, and so before I turn this over into this more uh, formal dialogue, I always start with a personal question is what role have dreams played for you in your own personal journey in your own life? And what um, place do dreams still um, maintain for you in your own journey? So lots of stuff to send the volley in your court for the first time. Yeah. Uh, wow. That is so I'm so glad that you picked up on that. That's uh, uh I mean, it's, there's so much to unpack in that theme. Um, and it's interesting talking about this now because I sort of had these two different periods of my life. You know, there was the period of writing and researching Head Trip, which was 15 years ago now, when I was really on top of the dream literature and I was paying a ton of attention to my dreams and a lot I can say about that. And then I kind of, as that book finished, I went through actually kind of a challenging period of my life and and I was really getting deep into meditation practice. And now meditation kind of has ballooned to become this all-encompassing thing in my life. It's what I do as a career, which I had no idea that would be the case when I wrote Head Trip. It's where so much of my thinking happens. So this is an opportunity to kind of bring those two together in a way. Um, and what I would say is that, you know, I'd always been interested in consciousness, but from the youngest there was always a dreamlike quality to it for me. And it was always a real attraction to the dream world for me. I mean, I remember having my, I had an old Omni magazine. I don't know if you remember Omni magazine. Oh, totally. Oh, absolutely. Bob, Bob Giacchione's uh, magazine. Yeah. That, I love that magazine. It was, uh, it yeah. was my kind of like, you know, it was sort of a, if it, people, if your viewers don't, or your listeners don't know it, it's sort of this, it was sort of a pop science kind of like, but slightly psychedelic. Um, I would interesting be looking at some old issues now, but it was, and it, it was a great magazine and it had a whole issue on lucid dreaming. And I remember being about 13 or 14 years old and sitting down and really 
trying, like learning how to lucid dream, like practicing lucid dreaming, practicing all of the techniques. That I can't even remember the exact ones that they shared then. And I, would, I had my first few sort of lucid dreams. I had it, many experiences being young of just lying in my bed and trying to kind of send my consciousness out and imagine what infinity was. And I would go into these strange sort of like dreamlike trances. And um, I was also very obsessed with <clears throat> trying to understand when consciousness moved from waking into sleeping. Like I got completely, my whole life I've been trying to pay attention to that point. And because I remember being a very young kid and being at a sleepover with a friend and my friend, maybe I was in grade three or something. And my friend just instantly fell asleep. It was the first time I realized I don't ever do that. You know, I'm awake for at least an hour to just lying in my bed and noticing my mind and trying to figure out what's going on. That was, you know, only then that I realized that that was kind of like a weird thing. So the, so being interested in dreams, looking at dreams have was kind of my foundational way into being interested in the mind. And it was very natural that I ended up working on a book about it. And as I was working on that book, I had, you know, I was, exploring hypnagogy, I was exploring lucid dreaming, I was exploring regular dreaming, I was exploring slow wave sleep, I was exploring the state, the watch. I mean, I was doing what I was learning was that that this monolithic idea of uh, one eight hour chunk of sleep and then we're awake is just this sort of, um, uh, that's just this crude illusion that a mind that hasn't spent much time paying attention to it kind of labors under. And that when you actually turn your gaze to to the, the night, to the darkness, as you put it, you start to see things get very finely elaborated into many very different forms of cognition and experience um, that, as you say, I think are fundamental to how waking consciousness operates. And I have a whole new perspective on that from being a meditation teacher because yeah. I spend so much time going in and sharing my focus as a teacher is really about helping people understand what their inner experiences and hearing reports. And so I hear a lot about people's descriptions of um, image consciousness in like versus language consciousness, uh, which I can go right into. And I see that image consciousness as being basically the kind of primordial dream life uh, that is there that just becomes, you know, when we fall asleep, the sensory input gates close, but there's still this very vivid, uh, more actually it's more top down, uh, influences from our schemas and whatever else, the internal everywhere that come to the fore. I mean, there is so much to talk about here, dude. <laughs> so, yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, I, I mean, again, I couldn't re I couldn't agree more with you, and it's one of the really delightful aspects of your book, and maybe I can ask you to give just the briefest overview for, for our listeners, because I really want to direct them to this book, but what really struck me about it, many things, one, to elaborate on what you just said, is part of what we do with our, our kind of nightclub charter is um, in a certain sense, it's replacing this, um, the metaphor, the analogy I use is, uh, you know, the West has this kind of crude light switch model of mind consciousness. You know, it's either awake or asleep, um, dead or alive, black, white, yes, no. And like you mentioned, that that's a really kind of crude, un, untrained way to relate to mind and reality. And so what um, we do with our nightclub, and this is uh, something I've experienced in my own journey for some four decades now, is we replace this light switch with a dimmer, where it, it's not just yes, no, uh, alive, dead, wake, asleep. No, in, in a highly trained mind, and this may, may seem just an outrageous assertion, 
for especially Western um, scientists, the you know, in the mind of an awakened one, a, a Buddha from any tradition, that mind really never turns off. Um, there are a few kind of photons, uh, quote unquote, of awareness that are left on. In, in the literature, you know, upon Cole's reading is replete with accounts of awakened ones who, who literally just, um, the light of awareness stays on, this kind of tacit awareness, even in the deep dreamless state, which, by the way, Jeff, is being studied by a couple of uh, really eminent neuroscientists uh, as we speak, Giulio Tononi and others. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the, yeah, there's a, there's a few photons of consciousness. And so... Yeah, exactly. And your book was completely resonant with that. It's like, whoa, you know, this is the same thing. And so give us a little bit um, of an overview, if you would, of, of the wheel of consciousness um, and how that has played out for you um, actually in your own life. I mean, you're suggesting that already, but tell us, give us an overview of the book altogether, because you cover so much in this book, um, which, by the way, is really um, beautifully Illustrated. I love the drawings, and I think even more beautifully referenced. You did a, you did your homework on this one, so give us a little bit over the overview of the book itself. Yeah, uh, well, I'm happy to. Um, it's uh, it's fun to talk about this here because it's been like 15 years. <laughs> oh. yeah. um, I mean, the first thing to say is, and this may sound like a strange place to start, is I was officially diagnosed with attention deficit disorder after I finished the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> The reason I say that is I had no, I had an enormous curiosity and no sense of, uh, of boundaries when I was researching this. So I was interested in trying to come up with a basic uh, taxonomy of all the most fundamental ways we're aware through 24 hours. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't a taxonomy that I had could find anywhere in the literature. I came from a English literature background. I wasn't a science. I was a journalist, and but I was really into into science. And you know, my brother's a neuroscientist, and I'd been around that language my whole life. And I was very comfortable reading science papers. And so I kind of went out to try to. It started with my interest in sleep and dreaming, and I started to see, oh wow, there's lucid dreaming here. There's REM sleep. There's hypnagogia. I started to see how there were different um, kinds of very different states uh, in in the evening. And at night, and I started thinking about waking as well. And so I went out with this idea that in the researching of this book, I'm going to try to see if I can identify the primary waking states as like as places to travel to. As that's the, there's a whole passport metaphor. Like these are states of consciousness that have their own unique phenomenology and their own quality of kind of knowing. And I wanted to articulate what that was and then champion the kind of knowing that was happening in those different states, which yeah. I didn't think was the same as it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't want to reduce one state to the laws of another. I wanted to kind of try to meet it in its own uh, terms and describe it from the inside as well as from the outside. So the book is both an attempt to describe the neuroscience and the psychology of what is known about these different states, but also more importantly, you know, it, and that really led to my focus on subjective experience. What was my own personal experience of these and then drawing in other people's personal experiences. So and kind of looking at where those that to me. And I didn't know I was very much groping in the dark. You know, I didn't know. No, I couldn't find this typology anywhere. No one had really put it out like that other than the basic one of waking, sleeping and dreaming that was there within Indian literature. And even in the West, even Western literature, in the science and psychology and neuroscience, they didn't even talk so much about the big three. I mean, it was 
you keep in mind this, and I know you know this, the science of dreaming was, you know, still, it's, it's still in its infancy, you know, it sort of like started in the 50s. So you have this, so I looking to Eastern traditions, I could see there was these three states, and then of course they would talk about Turiya, the fourth, so yeah. I had a chapter on pure consciousness. Um, but that's where I kind of began, and I just went by through into ramsacking the literature and, you know, just reading all the journals, and what I was blown away by was that there was no crosstalk. That the world of dreaming, there was nobody in the world of studying dreams who was looking at the world of hypnosis when, when, when hypnosis was so massively relevant to dreaming. That's right. There was nobody in the in the in the neuro in the neurofeedback world who was interested in in the hypnosis world or in the meditation world who was looking at the dreaming world or in the lucid dreaming world who was. I mean, for, first of all, the lucid dreaming world. There were no researchers in the lucid dreaming world except for your friend Stephen Leberge and mine and a few people, but there was just a handful, you know, and that started in the 80s and into the 90s. So, so there was like, I wanted to kind of try to both identify what the different, these different destinations were in the mind, and then to try to create some understanding of, well, what did they all, were they all, what story were they all, was there something, what was unique about their story? And what was, was there a common thread of something they were pointing to? What, what, how could we, what could I learn about dreaming by looking at the hypnosis literature, vice versa? And so that was entered, a massive 500-page book with like 100 pages of references that I can't even believe I ever got finished because I haven't managed to really get anything to that level done since. But I had no, it was because I had no clue what I was getting into. And I had the kind of like, I had the kind of uh, witless optimism of a, <laughs> of, a, of a newbie and a fool in a way. But I'm glad I did because I, I got to, you know, have this big adventure. So. Well, no kidding, and it's it's really it 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 harks to the the beauty of the beginner's mind, and and you know Suzuki Bushi says you know there's so much more available for the beginner's mind, and God, you, na- you nailed some really important points here for me, Jeff. One is, you know, this the the um, the West has this kind of wake centric um, bias dominance, you know, which which I argue in in a book I'm writing now is is also related to um, uh, not only wake centricity, but um, it's connected to site centricity, um, photocentricity, all in the service of egocentricity. Yes. And my argument is that the reason this is so is it's fundamentally ego in an untrained mind. Ego is only fully online and operational in the waking state. And so therefore, arrogantly, it, it, you know, in the same way that science exactly. perverts into scientism, it just dismisses um, states it can't experience, and therefore it colonizes and dominates other states of mind and reality it can't fully experience, which is so yeah. naive at best and arrogant um, at worst. And so what I really appreciate that you do here, and I think you may be even right about it, you know, this kind of um, this naive quest for explanatory dominance that the Western model of mind has. And in the East, uh, really, they draw one of the big distinctions between Eastern and Western philosophies of mind is the East draws their descriptions of reality from from all three states, or as you're alluding to, even in, in Shaiva Tantra, Turiya, Turiya Tita, fourth and beyond the fourth. And so it's a much more comprehensive in, in, the, in the language that I'm using, Jeff, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, integral theory. The, your, your work is really completely in resonance with um, so much of what I'm a uh, kind of pursue with my own study and writing is this integral approach to mind and reality that once we open the aperture of awareness, yeah. then we realize how myopic and constricted and contracted. And, and I'm arguing now why this lust for contraction, why, in fact, are we so afraid to open our um, um, mind and heart to 
uh, kind of darker dimensions of being. What what's the underlying psychological reasoning for kind of looking at world mind and reality in such a limited, constricted way? Um, and so, like when you said, you, it, it's fear. <laughs> it's it's and, and that's what we did. By the way, we that's we cool. we did a web we did a webinar just yesterday, and I started with your quote. Um, with you know, with like 500 people, and we were talking exactly on this topic of fear and how to transcend it. That you know, that we're afraid of the dark. We're afraid of dimensions of being that we can't fully experience. So maybe run a little bit with that and see how um, how that has played out in your own life. Well, it's very relevant to me. The I, I think the um, core what you're describing there, it has to do with the fear of the unknown. That's it. Uh, that, you know, and that we uh, it's we want certainty, you know, because we want to be able to make predictions. And that ends up being the major kind of conclusion I come to in Head Trip is all about how the mind is so how the waking mind is so governed and the, and the dreaming mind, too, by our expectations, by our prediction, that kind of prediction making capacity. We want to make predictions about how reality is going to unfold so we can control what's going to happen. That's but right. it's fundamentally out of our control. And that's, that's right. we know. And so not knowing is terrifying. And, and the truth is, if you open your mind to reality, you will be humbled because it is absolutely infinite in all directions. And yeah. it is impossible, even in an integral framework, that's just like, that's just this shoddy, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for, for Wilbur's stuff, but there's no such thing as an intellectual model that can be filtered up through us that can accurately depict the infinite complexity and variation of what's actually out there. That's and right. to be open to that is so terrifying and so humbling that we can't even, you know, we need to continually just pave everything over with our little models, our little models, our little models, our little models of reality. And interestingly enough, the mind that most does that, the kind of Apollonian, a rational um, sort of silo brain. And <laughs> it, it, that silo brain, basically, the because the, the the very beliefs that it holds close foreclose all those other realities. That's right. it, so it's like in hypnosis, if you're skeptical of this is one of the things from literature of hypnosis. If you're skeptical of hypnosis as a phenomenon, yep. you will prevent you'll be prevented from experiencing hypnosis. It's hilarious. And it's the same with the course mystical and contemplative understanding that that's why it's so important. The belief piece of this is so important to begin. And it's not to say you have to believe in something that's so far removed from your experience. Actually, it's the opposite. You have to begin to believe what your experience is showing you that's moment right. by moment, minute by minute. As your experience changes, you continually believe in the truth of what you're being shown. And in the believing of the truth of what you're being shown, you expand the bandwidth of what is possible to see. So you move out with your, so your, your, your own beliefs are continually being confirmed by your experience, which in turn is, being, is reinforcing a better view or model. And that's the way you can come, you can expand your mind into approaching more and more, but you have to have this humility and know that. And then psychedelics are big for that. You know, if you ever totally. had any experience with the medicines, it's like, I mean, the main experience for me is always, okay, little beach chimp, you know, <laughs> you are you think you have all these ideas of what it, you don't know a damn thing. Yeah. And I just, and I'm, it's just like, I get on my knees and I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for showing me that I, and for, and for basically putting me in my place, which is in a place of, of humility and gratitude and wonder around. And that's just never going away. 
Yeah, you know, I'm reminded of Rilke's beautiful quote um, where he says you know, along these lines, um, winning does not tempt that man for this is how he grows by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. And, and this, is, this is what the West doesn't want to do. Yeah, you know, the, the West wants to win. It, it's part of its wake-centric agenda, this kind of um, fear-driven, myopic approach to reality. And so, I mean, what you said here is just fantastic. It's, it really is flipping the usual maxim of I'll believe it when I see it with I'll see it when I believe it. Um, and so this is the other thing that, that hides out in the dark. And we have Freud yeah. to thank for bringing this into the Western light of awareness is that our belief systems, and I, I'm trained in clinical hypnosis. I mean, I use it in my clinical practice and it's astounding. Uh, and I know you've done this research yourself. Um, one of the best chapters in your book, by the way, was on hypnosis. Uh, it, it's really quite unbelievable. And I think, you know, this archetype goes so far is we often talk about waking up and the Buddha is the awakened one and all that sort of thing. I also think the Buddha is the dehypnotized one. Absolutely. Whether we know it or not, and this is exactly what I'm, I'm writing about now, I'm, I'm um, my, the third book in this dream trilogy is uh, kind of an integral approach to the phenomenology of lucidity and non-lucidity. And this kind of archetype of hypnosis is a really big part of it because we're hypnotized by our culture, by our society, by our own storylines. And and therefore, you know, to, to tie this back in to what you're talking about at the outset of this last section, I I actually argue, and I'm wondering how this lands with you, is that in a very real way, um, non-lucidity using that, that narrative is really a developmental issue um, based on egoic agendas that, that they're really, and this is one of the most insightful things that you said in your book, in a footnote, you had such a treasure trove of insights in your footnotes. But in one of your footnotes, you talk about how um, we humans are hardwired for narrative immersion. I mean, that's freaking brilliant, my friend, because narrative immersion, I mean, neurologically, that's a default mode network. But this is all based on, on the idea that ego itself is nothing but a narrative. Ego itself is just a bad story with a really bad ending. And so um, <laughs> non-lucidity altogether is largely a developmental issue based on the arrested development of ego. And so if we understand that, then we can, just like with fear, we can put ego and fear, which are virtually synonymous, into its particular slotted bandwidth of human development. Thank it for you know, allowing us to get to this particular stage in, in human evolution and then realize that you know if we don't open our eyes and and transform this narrative we will continue to be subsumed by it and and continue to live our lives in the dark which is one definition of samsara altogether so i mean this contribution that you make here is is just spot on well thank you that's so cool i love talking about this you know it's so funny and this is sort of like the conversation i wanted to have 15 years ago around <laughs> adventure and when it came out, I had all these, you know, it was fun. I had lots of media and certain, but it was all around, oh, dreams are, tell us how, how dreams can be fun for emotions. You know, it was like, I really <laughs> wanted to be, and this is, which is great, but I really want to be getting into the deeper issues here. And, and I think I've, I think I myself didn't really even understand what I was learning there. I, mean, I was just yeah. understanding parts of it. And now having spent 20 years in a serious meditation practice, I have a different and maybe a, a broader understanding of those themes. And I, without question, the primary metaphor that I I use with my with students and when I think about meditation is this this tension between trance and waking up out of trance. 
And yeah. that, that, that's what is happening moment to moment is we're continually getting embedded in these trances of our own making um, and, the, uh, and then believing them to be real. And then there's this, you know, the single most, I wish I wrote more about this in the meditation chapter, but I was so new to meditation when I wrote written head trip. I, the one part of the book I would rewrite now would be the chapter on meditation, just because yeah. it's such a yep. different view. But, but the, 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 the primary phenomenon, for me, the core phenomenological piece within a meditation practice or an insight practice is the experience of noticing that you've been in a trance and waking up out of it and That's the right. refreshment and space that suddenly emerges and the incredible liberty or the incredible freedom of realizing that, oh, I don't have to be in this. That thing I thought was fate, that thing I thought was real, that thing I thought was how things were, was just how I imagined things were. <laughs> and it was just a habit I was in. And gotcha. that I can pop out of that and, there's, and I don't have to be in that fate, fated to, to follow through to that same destination. And so that sense of just like incredible space and freedom and gr gratitude that you can come out of that is the, that's the main thing that we um, that come, happens again and again. And there's a ton more I can say, but one thing maybe just to put in here because I is also the beauty of trance because I don't yeah. want to make it all like a yeah. you know the the capacity to be lost in to lose ourselves in the music. You know, I love going to nightclubs. I love your name, nightclub. I love nightclubs. I love like, you know, being out in the music and being with my friends. And there's a sense in which there's a kind of abandon. And I feel like when I really let go, I can get in the trance of the music and the beats and the connections with people. And trance is itself, I mean, the path of concentration is the path of using trance to That's come right. out of trance. That's right. So, you know, trance is a gift. It's like to be, and I often hear something in the contemplative world that really bothers me, which is I hear people say, Oh, I used to get really in. I used to be really into reading novels and films, but now I never lose my witness. I can't. I can't um, appreciate them the same way, or like, oh, they're just. Those are those are childish entertainments. And I always think, what a loss. You yeah. Know? yeah. Although I understand it, I also have a. I, I, it's harder for me to be completely absorbed or lost in trance than it was before. When I do, I so appreciate it. And I and I'm. This is one of my the, my colons that I wonder. Is there a way to like be to completely give yourself over to trance in a way that's to enjoy the wonderful benefits of it in a healthy way, and then when needed to kind of pop out and disembed, and then then go back in and choose one again? And that to me seems like a good life. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just one dollar for your first thirty days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.